Welcome to the Unbiased Label Podcast with me as your host, Zara Karutz. On this podcast, we believe that labels belong on clothes, not people. We have real talk on all things fashion and culture from a critical global perspective. In keeping in tune with this philosophy, please enjoy our new segment in partnership with the Asian Fashion Journal with Jacqueline Pham reporting from Vietnam on fashion through the lens of Asian culture. In this week's segment, Jacqueline discusses a snapshot of Vietnamese local fashion brands within the context of the global fashion industry. Please enjoy Jacqueline's segment, Post Conversation. This episode is a conversation with icon American celebrity hairdresser, Ted Gibson, who is known for an incredible portfolio of work, including his couture hair, both on the runways and in the magazines, including Vanity Fair, Elle, Harper's Bazaar, in style, Vogue, Women's Wear Daily, and Allure. Ted's long list of Hollywood clients includes Angelina Jolie, Lupita Nyong'o, Anne Hathaway, Priyanka Chopra, and Jessica Chastain, to name a few. Ted, along with his husband and colorist, Jason Bakke, opened the world's first smart salon in Los Angeles called Starring by Ted Gibson, designed by Francisco Gonzalez Polito. Please enjoy the conversation as I talk with Ted from Los Angeles about his career as a celebrity hairdresser. Now on to the conversation. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to talk to you too. It's been a lot of years since we've known each other. You've always been somebody that I've looked up to in the industry. I really just want to talk about your story because you are a living icon. I went to Graham Webb Academy, rest in peace, Chris Gordon, who passed away. And my very first job out of hair school was at Aveda. You were like the Aveda god. You were the man behind the brilliant. Brilliant line was my conception that I went to Horst with and said that, you know, I would like to develop this for Aveda. I did all the testing in the the lab, everything. Before that, Aveda really didn't have anything for textured curly hair. Right. Yep. Yep. That's incredible. I worked for Aveda specifically for about seven years. And, you know, that seven years, I went from a beauty school teacher to a global educator for Aveda and traveled the world. I worked directly with Horst. I did all the hair shows all over the country. I traveled everywhere. If the whole conversation is going to be about you being an icon, everywhere you go, you do that. And, and oh. that's, I think, what's so interesting about your story. Well, you know what? Thank you for that. I have been in this business for a really, really, really long time. The things that I've been able to do, owning four salons, fashion shows in London, Milan, and Paris. And I've had such a really great opportunity to be a celebrity stylist, do covers of magazines, editorial. I say that because, you know, a lot of people don't think that being a hairdresser is something that can be profound, but I have definitely been profound. I think your whole career has been 
breaking boundaries and reshaping norms in ways where you're like, no, I'm going to show you how it's done. This is what I mean. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny you say that because most people that just hear the name Ted Gibson, they think I'm some straight English boy, <laughs> five foot eight and, you know, blonde hair and, you know, blue eyes. And then I show up and they're like, oh, we didn't know. Well, yeah, that's the whole point because it wasn't necessarily supposed to be me. My dad was in the army. I grew up, you know, a military brat. Uh, I spent most of my time in Texas. We would go to Germany, we'd come back to Texas, we'd go to Japan, we'd go back to Texas, we'd go to Hawaii, we'd go back to Texas. And I think that that experience opened my eyes up to different diversities of, of beauty and knowing that my mantra of all these years has been about the textures of hair, not the color of the skin. I say that all the time, Ted, yeah. and hair has always been political, but yes. I was taught the same thing that it's the hair texture and it's never to do with skin color. We just weren't taught that way. Yeah, yeah. And for me, it makes me mad when someone says black hair, like it's not black hair because you can be like Lupita Nyong'o who has soft texture hair and right. very, very dark. And you can be, you know, Deborah Messing and have coarse kinky hair and be light. So, you know, it's not about the, the color of the skin. It is about the textures of hair and what in your technique is gonna be the best for that texture. Yeah, really totally. About. There's something really interesting. Everything that you've done, you've mastered. And this goes back to Aveda days. The only reason why I ended up going into the fashion business, because, you know, as a kid growing up, a high school athlete, I loved fashion, but I didn't really know that when I discovered I wanted to be a hairdresser, that there would be this opportunity to do fashion, meaning you know, magazines or fashion shows. In the 80s, there was a television show and this woman named Elsa Clinch, who mm -hmm. did, did, you know, fashion runway on Saturday mornings, brought all these supermodels to the runway and showing the world on CNN. Mm -hmm. There was an opportunity for yeah. that. I didn't know that you could do hair for that. I had no idea. So there was this moment that I had working at Aveda and Horst said to me, he said, Ted, you know, you should move to New York because you could do editorial and you know, teach if you want to, but you know what, I, I, I really think that that's what you should do and in, in go into the fashion business. I, I can say that it's amazing to have mentors and people in your life who maybe see something in you that you don't necessarily see in yourself. And, yeah. you know, when you hear those things, it's really important to not be afraid of them and to move forward with the guidance and the knowing you know, mm. always know. I think it's important to, to listen to mentors and people who um, have done it and, and know. And he said that I should do that. And I ended up moving to New York and it changed my life. It changed my whole career. The reason why that even came up was because this was probably 1995. And Horst brought in this gentleman named, I call him a gentleman. He would kill me if, I, if he heard me say this, but his name is Thomas McIver. And Thomas MacGyver is a Scottish dude, and he really did amazing editorial and had this really fantastic editorial career. So we brought him in to help us with the trend work this one season. And we hit it off, and it was really, really great. And he kind of opened me up to the idea of even that being a possibility of doing fashion. And then the next season, we brought in Eugene Solomon and Pat McGrath. And Eugene and Pat, they were at this, this kind of trajectory 
They were working with a photographer named Craig McDean, and they were doing all editorial for every single major publication from, you know, Italian Vogue and, you know, British Vogue, everyone, and putting a huge stamp on what fashion meant. And what I mean by that is that we were coming out of the supermodel craze into the waif craze of Kate Moss, Maggie Reiser, Erin O'Connor, all of these girls who... You know, I did my first show in Milan with Miu Miu, with Eugene, and it was those girls. It was Maggie Reiser. It was her first show, and Erin O'Connor. It was these really incredible girls who were more fashion girls, and Kate Moss, who were more fashion girls than they were, like, celebrity supermodels. And when Eugene and Pat came in that season, and it just completely 100% opened my eyes. So when Horace said for me to move to New York, he asked me three different times because I would come home and tell Jason. And Jason was like, I don't want to move to New York. So, <laughs> so the last time I said, Jason, I said, he's not going to ask me again. Like, we have to go. And ended up moving. And it was incredible. So w- when you moved to New York, you were at Aveda then? Yes, I worked for Aveda for about eight more months. And at the time that I left was the same time that Horse had sold to Estee Lauder for right. $380 million or something crazy like that. That's crazy. Yeah. And then what did you do? I started building my book. And at that time, you know, of course, there was no internet. And this was 1998 when I was doing shows in, in, in Europe and I was building my book and really knowing the difference in having a vision and eye for what fashion editorial is because right. fashion editorial hair is different than, than hair that is behind the chair or hair that is celebrity hair. It's different. It, it's a whole different ball game and it's a whole different eye to train your eye in that. So I did a lot of assisting. I built my book and started doing lots of editorial for every major international publication from Vogue to Harper's Bazaar and Elle and Marie Claire and Cosmopolitan and just really was building a really great reputation in the fashion business. And your salon business. But the salons didn't come until 2003. The whole reason why the New York Salon started, which was open for almost 14 years, the reason why it started is because we were seeing a trend And that trend was going from models to celebrities on covers. Models got to be where they weren't necessarily that interesting in respect. You know, of course you had your Giselle, of course you had your Molly Sims, of course you had, you know, these girls who had interesting stories that could fill up a magazine, the cover, and then on on the inside for editorial, you know, content. Right. Um, But what was happening was that that whole shift from models to celebrities was happening. And that was probably early, early 2000s. Yeah. And when it started to shift, I didn't really want to be a celebrity hairdresser because honestly, if you were a celebrity hairdresser, you lived in Los Angeles and you weren't very good. (laughs) The truth, you weren't very good. But if you lived in New York, you were excellent because, you know, we created the trend. We would do the shows in September. We would do the shows in February. We would do couture in between. 
that whole thing about cerulean blue and devil was Prada <laughs> is the truth. Like, you know, you would do the show in September, which was the spring show. Those fashion editorials would come out right before that. That would set the trend for that season. And that's what was happening. So I didn't right. want to be a celebrity hairdresser. I was on I'm a fashion hairdresser. Interesting. So, I never yeah. knew that. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. So that, what was, it was so fascinating. So, so, so fascinating. So as that shifted into thinking, okay, so what am I going to do? I do not want to be a celebrity hairdresser. And how essentially it really happened is I was doing a cover for Marie Claire magazine one day. And the fashion director at the time, her name is Lucy Sykes. And I'll go back to say how important it is to listen to people when they have a suggestion or yes. they see something in you that you don't necessarily see in yourself. And this is one of those points. Okay. So Lucy said to me, Ted, you know, I have this opportunity. I think that you should do it. I said, what is it? I'm so excited. She said, well, it's a cover of magazine. And I said, oh, great, a celebrity. I said, I don't want to do it. She said, what? I said, I don't want to do it. I'm not a celebrity hairdresser. I'm a fashion hairdresser. She said, let me tell you something. I think this is really good for your career. I think you really should consider it. I said, Lucy, really? She goes, yes. She said, Marie Claire is shooting the cover in the morning. Cosmo is shooting the cover in the afternoon. It's Patrick Demarchillier and it's Angelina Jolie and we're shooting in London. Oh my gosh. And I said, really? She said, yes, you have to do it. So I said, okay. I went and did it and it changed my career because everyone was wondering who was doing Angie's hair. Right. Um, and we decided that with this notoriety that that's when we opened the first salon, which is in New York. Oh. Yep. So that's the reason why it happened. It wasn't something that I thought that would be part of my life is to open a salon, but we wanted to create a brand. And the only way to create a brand in my business, what I thought was to open a salon. So that's how it happened. Interesting. Interesting. I want to pick back up on that. You did never wanted to be a celebrity hairstylist, especially no. in, um, in LA, because that's where you live now. <laughs> I know, isn't that funny? Yeah, but you know, the, the thing that I really love ab about who I am as a person who have, because, you know, I, I am a visionary and I'll say yeah. that today, I am a visionary. And the whole idea of the reason why I live in Los Angeles is because every city, if you believe in astrology, if you believe in the universe, if you believe in a higher power, if you believe in God, whatever it is that you believe in, yeah, I believe that there are different times for different cities, different individuals. Everything has its ebbs and flows. I agree. But it's leaning into that. It's really having the courage. And if I look at those different threads of every chapter, every accomplishment, you have always been fighting for the worth or the value of women, the profession, yourself, people. When did you first break news with the world's most expensive haircut. I mean, I remember when that came out, all the hairdressers were cheering, like, woo, <laughs> $1,000 a haircut, yeah, woo. Yeah, like, yeah. And that was a big deal. And you were very adamant about that. And you're like, yes, it's the experience. It, it is how you're treated. It is everything. And you 
created this art form of value that I think a lot of people needed to see because for so long, art in general has always been the easiest to devalue. Yes, it has. It totally has. You're so right about that. And, and you know, thank you for that because I forget, to be honest, you know, I'm so forward thinking that I forget about some of the things that have happened. And yeah, I'm still the most expensive haircut in the country. The thing that I know about that, as you said earlier, it is about the experience, but yeah. it is also about us as a collective of being in the beauty business as hairdressers. And, you know, that time where, where I decided that I wanted to be a hairdresser and I told my mom and dad and my mom and dad were like, why do you want to do that? You're not going to make any money. You know, you're going to in your feet all day long. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. And I know that a lot of us, you know, those of us that are listening, we know that that has happened in our life when we decided that we wanted to go into this business. And for me, it's not just only about having that most expensive haircut, but it's also about shedding light on the how incredible we are as human beings. And That's how, right. And our value and our gift to the world, or to our communities, to our states, to our country and to our world, we as hairdressers in the, in the beauty business have so much value. And for a fact, it's really, really, really important. It is. And I think that starts with the woman that's in your chair. Anyone that's a hairdresser has to have a love for a woman and yes. wanting to make a woman feel beautiful and care yes. for her. Yes. And, you know, it's, and so there's something in you that you want to give and I know I'm going back a lot, but I, I, okay. I can't help it because I was just thinking about all the things that you've done. I'm like, oh my gosh, is one after another after another. How did this guy cram in 45 lives into one life? <laughs> oh, <thank laughs> it's like, it's almost insane how much you've lived. It's incredible. Oh, thank you. Let's thank go you. back to what not to wear. Okay. okay. <laughs> can can we just go back to my favorite show? Yeah. You know, it, it's funny how it happened because I didn't know at the time, but TLC had called my publicist and said, can Ted, can Ted come in for audition? So my publicist said, um, somebody wants you to come in for audition. I, I had no idea what it was for or anything. I go in for the audition. They put me on tape. And as I'm leaving, they say, would you be interested in being on What Not to Wear? And I'm like, the TV show, What Not to Wear? They said, yes. I said, but Nick Arojo, that's his show. And they goes, yes, but we want to know if you would be interested in being on the show. And I said, yes, of course. Okay, cool. And ended up being on the show. And it's so funny because I did have reservations about it because, you know, there's this piece of me that, always wanted to make sure that I, you know, had a stellar reputation and uh -huh. I, you know, only wanted to do fashion and, and work on models and campaigns for Dolce and & Gabbana and Chanel, oh. you know, <laughs> wanted to be that hairdresser. And I go back a little bit because I remember the moment that I decided that I could not assist anymore. And the reason why I had that moment and that epiphany is because I said, look, you know, I'm 35, 36 years old at this time. I'm not a 22 year old or 23 year old kid who just got out of beauty school and wants to go into the fashion business and I'm going to assist 
and Eugene or whoever or Julian right. or whoever, and hopefully that at some point they're going to give me jobs. You know, I I was too old for that. I needed to figure out for myself what that was going to look like. So when I made that decision that I did not want to assist anymore, that I needed to go forward, that was the same feeling I felt about what not to wear. And even a celebrity hairdresser doing what not to wear, what does that really mean? And I'm like, I have to do it. Yeah. So they hired me for the job. I was on it for about six years and it made the name Ted Gibson a household name. There was points where I could not even walk in an airport. It's so crazy. That's incredible. It's so weird because I know how big you are and I know how famous you are. But to me, you've always been so approachable and nice and lovely. But to me, you're always a person that's been a person to be admired, but also I felt like I could relate to you. So to me, you're always somebody that I feel like if Ted could do it, I could do it. Yeah, thank you. And I think so, that's, that's the reason why God put me here. You know, I do. I do believe that. You know, I, I say all the time, if I could do it, anyone could do it. Like it wasn't expected. You know, I'm six foot three, 250 pounds, dark skin, <laughs> gay. I had every obstacle you could think of that would necessarily be a, a roadblock. But I, I have to tell you that I used all of that to my advantage. How? To think of it as it being someone else's problem and not mine. Yeah. And it really didn't matter to me. You know, it, it did matter to me in, in that respect. Yeah, it didn't matter to me. But I think it did matter in some level when anyone has to work harder because nothing's yeah. handed to them or they have to mm -hmm. overcome obstacles. I think it does matter to be acknowledged. And I, I just want to talk about this for a minute. There was a quote in the WWD, and this is what you said. If I was white and I had a French accent, and if I was 5'8", blonde hair, blue eyes, it would have been different. Yes. And then you go on to say, but I know I have to be better that I've always had to be better than my white counterpart at the same level as me because of the color of my skin. So yeah. on some level, the racism of the world has impacted you where you felt like you had to perform to get ahead better than anybody else. Yes, that's true. It's and true. your husband jumped in and said, Ted has worked with the most famous, beautiful, well-known, respected women in the world, but has never once had an American Vogue cover. Yes. And you true. agreed and said, because Vogue thinks of you as a black hairdresser. Yes. And I do have to say that even during this whole time, it still is happening because, yes, there are more black women on cover of Vogue. Yes but they're only black hairdressers that do those covers. The white women that are on cover of Vogue, no black hairdressers are doing those covers. Meanwhile, my entire experience of being in the fashion business, if any of my girls, white or black, had a cover, the white hairdresser would do it. They would not hire me to do it. And you have the most diversified portfolio of any person. If any, anybody that's at my level, anybody, you can name them, have not had the same kind of diversity or the same kind of... of Acclaim? Acc acclaim. 
that I've had. <laughs> and it still happens today. Like you, you see covers of magazine with black women on them, American Vogue, and they're only black hairdressers that do that. But the black hairdressers do not do the white actresses on the cover. It makes no sense to me. That makes no sense. Have we got an answer on this? No. no I'd, like a, I'd like a written response as yeah. to why Ted Gibson has yet to have an American Vogue. Yeah. That's nope. a travesty. It's so crazy. It's no, so crazy. that's an injustice. There's a lot of commentary on Vogue and the problems. So I'm not surprised. This is yet another reason why there needs to be change in the fashion industry. Yeah. It, it could be almost irrelevant. Who, who knows? Yeah. You know, it, at this day of where we are in the world, everything has changed. And if they had 10 years ago put as many Black women on the cover of, of, of the magazine, then everyone might feel a little different. I think the only way we can change it is to be the change. And, yeah. you know, that's what we can do. Yes. I wanted to get back to you not being a celebrity hairstylist and not wanting to be in L.A. and then choosing to move to L.A. <laughs> well, you know, as I said, I think that every city has its, you know, heyday and not. And I think that L.A. is having a heyday. And when Jason and I decided that we were going to close the New York salon, which was the last salon that we had open, was five years ago. And... What we were seeing in 2016, 2015, that the consumer was coming in, and as she would come in, we would do her hair. Then we would take her to the front desk and pull all the product off of the shelf and take it up to the front desk. And these are the things that I used on you. These are the things that I recommend for you. She would pull out her phone she would go to you know a shopping site and find it cheaper yeah that's true so it was true so we were seeing this over and over and over again and then we would see going to beauty schools because we went to beauty schools a lot to recruit to give education um and we were seeing that the students who were coming out of beauty school were like I don't really want to assist for a year and a half. Yeah. I want, I want it to be, you know, fast tracked. So how can we fast track it? Well, you can't because this is our program. Well, then I don't really, really want to do that. Right. Because it was the onset of Instagram and YouTube. Yeah. You could go online and learn how to cut a bob. You can go online <laughs> and cut some bangs. You could go online and learn how to highlight some hair. Right. <laughs> Right? That's so funny. It's true. You cannot a bob, a yes. highlight. <laughs> yes, that's what they think. <laughs> that's funny. That's what they think. So as this was happening, we were like, okay, so something's going on. And then we were in Dallas doing a hair show. And I have a, a life coach. Her name is Zan Ray. And Zan Ray was the first salon that I worked at in Austin, Texas. Mm. And Zan, Zan taught me how to do a great shampoo. She taught me how to cut hair. And she's been in my life since 1985, 86. Wow. Right? A long, long, long time. So we were all together at this hair show in Dallas. And 
we had just in September of that year, 2016, had five of our top producers leave the salon. Mm. So as they said, they weren't leaving. They ended up leaving. We went to Dallas the next month, which was November of 2016. And we were sitting down with Zan and she said, every single time I talk to you, all you guys talk about is you have nine more years on the lease. She said, why don't you close the MF? And we were like, what? <laughs> She's like, close it. It's not serving a purpose anymore. The business is changing. She said, close it. Yeah. Girl, December of 2016, we closed the New York salon. How did that and feel? Then, you know, it felt liberating. It mm. felt liberating. Yep. It was at a point where it wasn't working anymore. 20 yep. plus chairs, 60 employees, Oof. you know, six shampoo bowls. Oh it's just, you know, 4,000 square feet. Mm. It just got to that point where, you know what? The business is changing. If we don't close this place, we're going to be a slave to it. And it's also going to become a dinosaur. Oh, this goes back to your being a visionary. And I'll tell you what, it is so hard to let go and sometimes see things for what they are. It takes courage and it takes wanting to know the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Did you know what you were going to do at that point? No, we didn't. We had an apartment in the West Village. We had a house upstate. We would do clients in our friend's little petitaire. She had maybe a five-chair salon on the Upper East Side. We'd go up there and do clients a couple times a week. It was golden. We had a great, right? Yeah, you and did. April of 2017, we looked at ourselves and said, what are we doing? We're bored. We're not ready to retire. We're too young to retire. What are we doing? And I said, let's move to LA. And Jason said, okay. <laughs> so we sold our house upstate. We sold our apartment. We... Um, drove cross country, landed in LA, and never looked back. Why LA though? Was it an itch? What was drawing you? Well, because, you know, we felt like that the influencer, everyone is here. Huh. The influencers are here and the influencer can have more clout than an A-list celebrity. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's the truth. So, I wanted to be where I could do both, that I could do influencers and that I could do celebrities. Yeah, well, that's, and that will check, check. And that's what's here. That's what's there. That's You're what's right. Here. Yeah. And then you had this vision for this first in the world salon type prototype. Where did this come yes. from? Well, Jason and I, we arrived in Los Angeles in July of 2017. Okay. We knew we wanted to create another brand, but we weren't sure exactly what that would look like. So we launched one product called Shooting Star Texture Meringue, which is in between a foam and a mousse. But I use on wet hair, I use on dry hair, I use it on every photo shoot, every celebrity that I work on. And we started thinking about what do we want to do? And if we, we wanted to open another salon, what would it be like? So we were in Long Beach at the, the ISSA show doing main stage and doing classrooms and all that. And we decided that we wanted to open a new salon. So as we were contemplating what that would look like, we had hired an architect, 
Uh, the architect put together all these plans. And then we decided, you know what? The plans just look wrong. And it was a beautiful salon, but the plans just look wrong. And we said, okay, if we're going to do this, we have to think about what the future of salons would be because the future of salons is not what's happening right now. The salon had not been updated in forever, the salon experience. So we said, well, how about we create a smart salon? So we contacted Amazon and they loved the idea and we opened it. But before we opened it, we had contacted every manufacturer and said, okay, what we want to do is we want to be the experience center for your product, meaning that we don't want to warehouse your product on a shelf. We want everyone to be able to buy it from a QR code and ship direct to consumer. And they were like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> we would never, ever, ever do that. <laughs> we, we would never do that. <laughs> we're like, what? You're laughing at us? We know what the future is. Meanwhile, they have million dollar businesses on Amazon that the hairdresser doesn't even know. Right, right. And they send, if somebody buys something on Amazon from any of these manufacturers, they send them a little gift that you don't get if you come to the salon to purchase the product. So the people who are buying their toilet paper and buying their, you know, their uh, hair drying sheets and they're buying their tampons and they're buying all these things. Uh-huh on Amazon, and then they can buy their hair care, then that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. So the salon has spent $15,000 of product on their shelf waiting for the consumer to buy it who doesn't want to buy it in that environment anymore. That's and true. then the hairdresser who doesn't want to sell it. That's right. <laughs> You're so right. Because everybody that. knows. Everyone's like, well, go on Amazon. <laughs> Everyone's like, on Amazon. Who are we fooling? No one's fooling anybody, but people <laughs> just don't want to see us, so they turn a blind eye, right? Right. So then what happens is the pandemic, everyone is selling direct to consumer. That's right. Everybody. Everybody. The whole everybody. world changed. The whole world changed. And changing still. Still, yeah, that's right. Yep. That's right. And still changing. So that's how the smart salon concept was born. And then, of course, Amazon took our idea and opened one in England. It's not the same concept, but it is the same concept. Well, because your concept was is the clouds. Yeah, exactly. Because we never really said that we were an Amazon salon. We said it was powered by. Right. It helped us with the build out and everything. So it, that's what it means by powered by. Yeah. I, I, I think form has to follow function. Yes. But there's something about those clouds that you've developed that are really quite spectacular and um, functional at the same time. Yes, they are. And you know, uh, we have this architect out of Chicago. We told him what we wanted. We wanted to have a, a space that was, you know, entertainment while you get your hair done and also thought provoking at the same time and social distance. We created a social distance salon not really knowing that that's really what we were creating. Yeah. We wanted it to be semi-private, but we didn't want there to be doors. We wanted it to be interactive, but at the same time, we wanted you know everyone to have a little bit of privacy. And we didn't want to open a salon suite, if you will. Mm -hmm. So the clouds are 13 feet high by nine feet long and eight and a half feet wide. And they have 13 foot mirrors in them. And there are five of them. And each cloud has 
four LED light strips um, that you can actually tell Alexa to change the color depending on your mood or you want to check hair color, depending on what it is that you want to do, you can actually change the color inside of each of the clouds. It's fabulous. Yeah, it's really, really, really beautiful. Such an innovator. Such an yeah, innovator. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. In your story, I can't help but weave the story of your husband together because you are a dynamic duo in a team. Thank you. Yes. And I think it's such a beautiful example of what a healthy relationship should look like. Thank you. And I think it's so hard to find and rare. How do you have such a great relationship? Well, I think that I'm a Scorpio and Jason's a Capricorn. Mm. So we're meant to be together. And it'll be 28 years next year. So it's That's been a, really, it's amazing. Long. And we've worked together and have been business partners for over 20 years, probably about 23 years. Which years. is an even more astounding. Thank you. So, you know, we're together pretty much, you know, 24-7. And the thing that I can say that works is because... I do my best not to try to make him me. And I think that he does his best not to try to make me him. Mm. And there is a, a mutual respect that I think is important. You know, how we balance each other is that I, I'm a visionary and he kind of puts things in place. And I, I would not be able to have done everything that I wanted to do if he wasn't in my life, definitely. And he always says that probably if, if we hadn't have met, that he would still be in Minneapolis, probably working at a salon and having a content life. But, you know, I don't necessarily stay still. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> no stay still. So he, he understands that. And at the same time of understanding that, I found someone who really cherishes that and helps me with that. Yeah, that's right. And, and we get along, you know, and I like him. Yes, I, I love him and I'm in love with him, but I like him as well. And I think that that's a key component. And we both have separate bathrooms. Ooh. So I think <laughs> that's a big difference. <laughs> it's the little things. It's the little Thank things. You. It's the little things, 100%. Yeah. No, I think it's true. And was it love at first sight? I, I was a beauty school teacher at the time. And I was teaching at the Horse Education Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And this was in 1992. And Jason and I went out on our first date in 94. And the class that I taught was in the middle of the program. And the middle of the program was specifically about textures of hair. The, the whole course was eight months, but my class was about three weeks because I shared it with manicuring. So you would come in my class and then you would go to manicuring after that. And as my class was that three weeks, I would see Jason in the beginning of the program, beginning, um, I would see him walking in the hallway thinking, who's this really freaky looking person? Like, <laughs> he wore platform shoes and his eyebrows were dyed red. His, you know, his beard was really dyed red. His hair was dyed red. And, you know, I would say that he was more club kid, you know, yeah. at that time. Okay. And I was complete opposite of that. You know, I was a competitive bodybuilder and I wore clogs and I had dreadlocks past my shoulders. Yeah. And 
I would walk around school with, you know, a gallon of water because I needed to make sure that I drink a gallon of water a day. You know, just complete opposites. So he came into my class and the assignment was that I wanted each, there were about 20 people in the class, 25 people. And I said, I want everyone to bring in a model for a relaxer. And they were like, okay. I said, but she has to be black. And they were like, what do you mean she has to be black? I'm like, yes, she has to be black. I don't want you to bring anyone that is a mixed race or white, Caucasian. I want them to be black. And Jason was like, well, if, you know, you're always talking about it's texture of the hair, not the color of the skin, I should be able to bring in a white person. I said, no, this is my class. This we want you to do. Twice, he walked out of my class on me. And I thought it was hilarious. I'm like, who does this person think he is? <laughs> out on Ted Gibson. I thought it was so funny. I love that. That's like and ballsy. It's so ballsy. And I thought it was hilarious. And the reason why he walked out, because he said it was a contradiction. I said, no, it's not a contradiction. The re My method is, is that all of these people who are in this class probably would never, ever, ever have the opportunity to do a relaxer again. That's true. You know that. Yeah, so I wanted each and every one of them to have an experience of being able to do it. I and like he, he challenged your method. He sure challenged it. So I thought it was funny. And we went out on our first date and we've been together ever since. See? Yeah, he stayed the night, by the way. <laughs> and we and we watched Mahogany. If you've never seen oh, the movie Mahogany with mahogany. Diana Ross. Yes, that Mahogany with Diana Ross and Billy Dee Williams. Best movie. And we went to breakfast and he said, you're my boyfriend. I said, no, I'm not. He said, I don't care what you tell everyone else, but I'm telling all my friends and people that I know that you're my boyfriend. I said, you can tell them whatever you want. I don't want a boyfriend. I just got a new job at Aveda as global educator, and I'm going to be traveling, and I'm going to have boys in every port. I do not want a boyfriend. That was in August. September, we ended up going to Chicago with different friends that was already planned before we went on our first date, and we kept ending up at the same places. There was a bar called Crowbar at the time. We ended up there, not together, but separately. We saw each other on the dance floor. We ended up after parties at the same after. It was so weird. And I ended up missing my flight and asked him and his friend if I could ride back with them. And that's when I discovered that I was in love with him. <gasps> oh, my gosh. I love a good love story. <laughs> and I told him I loved him at that point. We were in the back seat. You Wait, you went from I don't want a boyfriend to I love you. I sure did in less than a month. Like what changed? I think that I saw him, you know, and I, you know, I, I don't care if you are gay or straight, you know, I think that we're all looking for someone to uh, take care of us and someone yeah. to, to love us and someone to value us. Yes. And, and I got that he did. I got that he did. Wow, that is powerful. That needs to be a whole book right there. I do want to talk about the Worth Up Alliance. So yes. what is this all about? Well, you know, last March, and I remember the moment, Jason and I were at the salon on March 15th of 2020. And we look at ourselves and we're like, okay, this is no joke. There's something going on. I know. It's we crazy. We gotta, we gotta figure out what we're going to do. So we have a house in Palm Springs that we rent out on Airbnb. 
all of the bookings for the spring and the summer had canceled because of COVID. And we said, okay, so we're going to go to Palm Springs and we are going to ride this out. So we went to Palm Springs. I think it was like March 17th or 18th. By the end of March, where everyone was in the same boat of thinking, holy crap, what's going on? What's happening? So we, in the beauty business, we're not hearing anything. Meanwhile, we're watching TV, watching, you know, CBS and NBC and CNN and seeing all of these people in the restaurant business talking about, okay, so this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. And Danny Meyer from Shake Shack was, you know, a restaurateur has all of these restaurants. And he was saying, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. We need to save our restaurants. We need to save our restaurants. Meanwhile, I don't see anybody talking about hairdressers, makeup artists, nail techs, estheticians, no one talking You're about right. anybody in the beauty business at all. You're right. So April, we ended up putting together about 50 hairdressers on a Zoom call one afternoon. And the Zoom call was only supposed to last like 30 minutes and ended up lasting almost three hours. Wow. All 50 of us on there trying to figure out what we can do, what could we say, what could we do, what could we do. So we ended up thinking about what that would look like. And at that moment, I said, Jason, you know what we need to do is we need to open a nonprofit so that if this ever happens again, that hairdressers have a resource. You know, the the Professional Beauty um, Association is great. Here in California, there's a professional federation was great, but they're limited in what they can do because they are funded by manufacturers only. Oh, okay. okay. So here it is. We decide we are going to open a nonprofit to help people if the pandemic, you know, if something like this happens again. And then we put together about 30 of the hairdressers we did on the same day an Instagram post and Facebook post about just special messages about lifting people up and, you know, you're not alone and raising your prices and all these different things that everyone wanted to say in their own soundbite of putting together and helping make a difference. Yeah. We are thinking about what that would be. The Worthup Alliance was born because there was no help for us. There's right. no one talking about us at all at all. So the Worth of Alliance being born is our goal is to raise about $300,000 for 2022 to be able to give money to hairdressers, makeup artists, barbers, estheticians, nail techs yeah. uh, who really want to open their own businesses or launch their own products. If you go to the worthofalliance.org, sign up for our entrepreneurial video library, which houses right now about 10 videos that are really specifically helping beauty entrepreneurs figure out which way they want to go in the business. And that money is going to help people launch product, open their own salons, really be the beauty entrepreneurs of their dreams. And what we, yeah, what we found is that, you know, there were three things, three touch points, you know, in, in, in the beauty business. And one, number one is that the fact that we don't have mentorship. 
you know, totally. we didn't, you know, we couldn't go down the street and ask when we opened our first salon, ask, you know, the, the major players on, on the Upper East Side, how do we do it, right? There was no mentorship. There were no opportunities for networking within our business. And then, of course, we know that there's a lack of funding. There are over 90% of women that are in this business, in the beauty business. Mm-hmm. And if you look at any major venture capitalist or people who loan money, you know, you, there aren't very many people of color that are in their portfolio. Totally. No, these are really accurate pain points. And I think this is you and your husband, Jason, living your authentic selves and really standing behind what you believe in. And to me, that's always what has set you apart, even with all of your fame and notoriety and acclaim and and being one of the world's most famous hairdressers, at the same time, you are so understanding and you coach and you teach. I remember when I first met you with the Cancer Schmancer. I remember. Um, remember that? Yes, of course. And it's like when you touch hair, you're gently taking its hand and going for a walk. The way that you approach hair is such a gentle way, but that's how you treat people at the same time. And you you create a very safe space, which as we know in the beauty industry, isn't always true. Yeah, thank you. So you're doing a huge work, huge work. I appreciate that, thank you. I am so thankful for everything that you've contributed and you are truly a living icon of our era. And and that's incredible be able to have this conversation with you. So thank you. Love you so much. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of the Asian Fashion Journal, the weekly segment that gives you insights into what's happening in Asian fashion and culture. I'm Jacqueline Pham, and today we're talking about Vietnamese local brands. Charles and Keith, General Monster, those are some of the easily recognized brands that have made their way into the international fashion market. They also take up quite a proportion in their local market in Asia. But in Vietnamese terms, they're not considered local brand. So what exactly is a local brand? A local brand is a fashion brand that has its designs and production within the country. They're referred to as local brands to separate from the well-established fashion giants that have long had a huge capture on Asian customers, as lots of Asians rely on brand names to make purchase decisions. Local brands tend to target a smaller niche, a smaller pool of customers, mostly young people who want to look hip, cool and different. Also, if you buy imported clothes from big companies, you have to pay for imported goods taxes. Whereas, in many lower profile local brands, you can find t-shirts and jackets that are a third of the price with the same quality. Plus, they make you look like you have taste. So in short, Vietnamese local brands are Instagram-based, direct-to-customer shops that have the advantage of cheap production, which cannot be replicated in a similar online clothing line based in Western countries. Fun fact, oftentimes the factory that pumps out clothing for a local brand 
is the same one as the vendor for Nike and Adidas. So a $60 jacket made by a local brand can have the finish of a $200 jacket sold by a brand in New York City. The disadvantage, however, is that most of the designs are more than likely stolen from other designers in the West. Cutting corners in the designing process saves time, money, and still works for the majority of Vietnamese customers, so many brands keep doing it. After all, they're their target market, not the international buyers. But nowadays, there are some Vietnamese local brands that know the protocol, who to target, and put some effort into their designs. Take for example Fancy Club, spelled F-A-N-C-I, who has amassed a following of 36,000 on Depop and over 70,000 on Instagram. They started out as a local brand, but the local people, aka the Vietnamese, did not buy their clothing because they're kind of too slinky and skin-revealing for the taste. So Fancy switched to a different target customer base, Instagram influencers from around the world. And from then on, they just blew up. Their image of this darker, more sophisticated Fashion Nova girl with a lot of sheer strings and bows fits perfectly with the Instagram baddie theme. Doja Cat stylist put her in Fancy, just so you can imagine their popularity. So the million dollar question is, can local Vietnamese brands like Fancy Club take the advantage of cheap production to bridge the logistic gap in the global fashion supply chain? Because we're immersed in an era of globalization where purchasing goods overseas is getting more convenient than ever, the prospect of buying well-designed fashion from Asian nations is quite plausible. Why this decentralization in fashion is a hopeful prospect, I'd say it would take more work than just mass-producing influencer clothing. Thanks for listening to the Asian Fashion Journal. Let me know your thoughts about this segment by leaving a review so I can provide you with more helpful and thoughtful insight into Asian fashion and culture. Until next week. Thank you for listening to the Unbiased Label Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, then please connect with us on social media, tell a friend, and leave a review. Please tune in next time for more conversation on fashion and culture from a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. Until next time, stay well.